places. Open to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you need a Bible, then you can just raise your hand and Stu, our faithful usher. Did you notice how quick the lights went on tonight after worship? He's good, you know. (laughs) So Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Throughout the history of God's work on planet Earth, there have been two entities through which he has worked in the world and revealed himself to men. The first is the Old Testament nation of Israel. God called Abraham, and then through him came a son, Isaac, who had Jacob, who gave birth to 12 sons, who ultimately sired what would become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, a nation that God birthed with the intent of revealing himself to the world. To them, he promised a land, the land of Canaan or Palestine or what is today known as Israel over there on the western side of the Mediterranean. Or is that the western side? That, that would be the eastern side of the Mediterranean uh, Sea there. Through them came the scriptures. God used them as a vessel to reveal his word, his truth to mankind. And from them came the Messiah, God bringing his son into the world, the Lamb of God who would be crucified to take away the sins of the world. And so that was the beginning or the foundation of God's revelation of himself as he revealed himself to the world through the nation of Israel. But Israel rejected the Messiah that was sent to them. The Savior that came from them, they rejected. And thus, God set them aside and began working through the second entity through which he has revealed himself and through which he works in the world. And that is the church. Not made up of one particular bloodline like the Jews were or one particular people group. But Jew and Gentile alike those that believe in God through faith in the Savior that came from Israel, all that believe in God through him are now a part of the second entity, the church that God works through uh, now in the world. Now, the church does not replace Israel. God did not forsake that first entity that he began working with. He set them aside for a time, but he will again deal with them. So the church does not replace Israel. The church is separate from Israel. However, there are some things that the church has in common with Israel. There are some similarities. First of all, the first similarity is that both Israel and the church are both made up of God's people. The word Israel means governed by God. That's what it means. And that's what they were to be. They were to be the people that were governed by God, thereby being a good witness for him in the world, governed by God. The church is also made up of God's people. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, the apostle Paul calls the church the Israel of God, not in the context that we have replaced Israel, 
but in the context that we also are a people that is Israel, governed by God. We call him the Lord, and we seek to follow his ways. And so both the church and Israel are both made up of God's people. So they're both instituted and ordained by God. They're both made up of God's people. But there are some important differences between Israel, the Old Testament entity, and the New Testament body called the church. The first one is that there are two different covenants associated with the two different groups. Israel was founded upon what we are calling the law, the Ten Commandments. And God's faithfulness to them was contingent upon their ability to keep the covenant of the law that he delivered to them on Mount Sinai. The church is not established under that covenant. We are under the new covenant of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's a difference. We're not under the law, pleasing God by the law, but we're under grace. And our acceptance before God is not based upon what we do, but based upon what he did. It's a total separate covenant. The other difference is that Israel, by and large, was primarily a physical entity and their experiences were in the physical realm and in the eye or or the visible eye it was a visible thing they had a visible land they were given tangible promises and everything that happened to them was by and large physical or visible the church on the other hand though we are god's people The promises or the expression or the the, the way that God works with us, it's primarily spiritual. Though we have a physical existence, we are matter, we're tangible, we talk to each other, we exist physically. Yet the way that God deals with us and the things that God does through and in our lives are by and large invisible. They're spiritual. And the promises that we have, for the most part, are intangible. We don't have a land like Israel had. We don't have those same type of, you know, things that they did. It's different, but yet it's still the same God, and we are the entity through which God is working on the earth. So what's the point? Why do I bring that up? Here's why. is because the experience that Israel, that we're looking at in the book of Deuteronomy, the experience that they had physically is a picture or a foreshadowing of the experience that we have with God spiritually, invisibly. The Apostle Paul brought this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you've turned there, you've opened to that, and I want you to hear what Paul has to say, making the point that I'm poorly making right now to you. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant How that all our fathers were under the cloud, speaking of the cloud that led them by day, you know, and the pillar of fire by night, and all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, that is the Red Sea. Now, notice that buzzword there, that word baptized. He says, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now listen to verse 6. 
Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Speaking of what happened at Beth Peor with Balaam, we've looked at that. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now listen, verse 11. Here's the culmination of this. He says, now, all these things, all of their experiences, everything that they went through physically, that we can read the story, that we could, you know, put into a motion picture that we understand because we can see, read the story. All of the things that happened to them physically happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, the things that they experienced physically, tangibly, shed light or give understanding to the things that we experience and go through spiritually. In other words, as we read about the experiences that they had, it helps us understand what God is doing in our lives. Those indescribable things, those undefinable things that we experience, but we don't necessarily know how to define. What do I mean? Well, God miraculously delivered his people from Egypt. They were in slavery and in bondage there under the hand of Pharaoh. And God miraculously sent a deliverer and set them free. And then they passed through the Red Sea. A type of what Moses says there, or what Paul said was a baptism. They were baptized in the Red Sea as they went through the sea. And then they went to Mount Sinai where they received the law. God's standard of righteousness given to his people. And then from there, they went into a time in the wilderness, 40 years wandering, waiting for the promise of God, waiting to understand what it was that they were called unto, why they were saved. And then ultimately, they were brought to their destiny, the land of promise, as God brought them through the Jordan River. And he gave to them the promise that he gave unto Abraham. And what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians is that all of those experiences are examples for you and I to understand what God is doing in our lives. Well, wait, we were saved, not from Egypt, but we were saved from bondage under a taskmaster in the world system, from Satan's realm, Satan's kingdom. Not by our own strength, but by the hand of a deliverer. Not Moses, but Jesus. And then we were baptized as we received him by faith. We went under the water and we came up again and we said, why are we doing this? As an expression that I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then all of us, every one of us, we then come to Mount Sinai. And we begin to learn of God's standard. We hear God's law and something happens within us. We become convicted. We become condemned. We realize that we can't keep this law, that we can't please God by ourselves. And so we're led into a season of wilderness wandering, a time of dearth. We say, God, why did you save me? What are you doing in my life? What is the purpose of all of this? 
I haven't heard your voice in I don't even know how long. I forgot why I even gave my life to you in the first place. I don't know what you're doing or what you're saying or what sense could ever be made of these experiences and these things that I'm going through, these these thoughts. What's happening inside of me as we're being humbled and crushed and, and something's happening, but we can't understand it. It's the wilderness. But the purpose of that is that ultimately God who brought us out of the world system, desires to bring us in to the promise, the plan, the destiny that he has for each one of us. The fullness of life in Jesus Christ, not just in heaven, that awaits us, but even on earth that we might enter into God's fullness as he brings us out of the wilderness and then brings us into the promises of God that we read in the pages of Scripture that no weapon that's formed against us will prosper, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, that all things are working together for good for those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, and that his will, his plans, his thoughts towards us are for peace and for good, and that he has a plan for us, and he wants to reveal himself to us. And so God's ultimate design for us is that we come into a full understanding of who he is. A relationship with him that's based upon love and that we're founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. But the things that happen to Israel are a foreshadowing of the the invisible experiences that we have. Thus, and I know this is a lengthy introduction, but thus what it means is that the things that we're learning in the book of Deuteronomy are of paramount relevance. Thank you. <laughs> In our lives. Because it gives understanding and application to the things that we're going through as we look at the things that happened unto them. And so we've seen them delivered from Egypt, through the Red Sea, at Mount Sinai, And where we left off now back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the children of Israel are being reminded by Moses of the time that they spent in the wilderness. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 are the memoirs, really, of their wilderness wanderings, or memoirs, I called this last week, the memoirs of the seminary of the Holy Ghost. And so we began chapter 8 last week, and we talked in those opening verses, about the required courses. What was God's intent? What were the things that they needed to learn that God taught them during that time of dearth and you know, dryness there in the wilderness? And we saw that for the most part, it was lessons in humility and in God's faithfulness. And then we saw in those next few verses there, the reason, or I'm sorry, not the reason, but the prize at the end as he talked to them about the blessings and the benefits and the prosperity and the houses and, you know, the the hills and the wealth and the honey in that land, as he held before them and said, this is where you're headed. And now as we resume here in verse 10 of chapter 8, God now gives to them the reason why it was necessary. This is very pertinent for you and for me. How many of us have gone through things, experiences in our lives, and we ask the question, we say, why, God? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? 
Why? Well, here's the answer God gives to them. This is why it was necessary, and this is why it's necessary for you and I to go through the wilderness. Verse 10, he says this. He says, when you have eaten and are full. Now, pause right there for a moment and consider what Moses just said. He didn't say, if it so happens that at one point you find yourself in a place where you've eaten and are full. But he says, when you've eaten and are full. That you are absolutely assured that this wilderness is not going to last forever. That God is going to bring you into the thing that he's called you unto. It's definitely going to happen. And when that happens, when you have eaten, he says, Then you shall bless the Lord thy God for all the good land which he has given you. Beware that thou forget not. And we've heard that word before, the word forget. It doesn't mean that... Oh, wait, oh yeah, God? No, no, it doesn't mean that you've forgotten God, but it means that he's been cast aside, that he's not in the forefront anymore. You know how it is when you're in the wilderness. Every one of our prayers is in desperation. (laughs) God, please help, And, and he's our only hope, and we're always in church, and God, God, God. But then what happens once he comes through? It's easy to forget the Lord, not push him out of our lives, but cast him behind us we don't need him so much anymore and he warns them he says beware lest you forget the lord thy god in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which i command thee this day lest when and there's that word again thou hast eaten and are full and has built goodly houses and dwelt therein it speaks of stability isn't that something that we thirst for love that verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, that says, The God of all grace, after that you have suffered a while, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And it's something that we cry out for, and here's what he's promising. He's saying that you're going to be established, you're going to be settled. And when it happens, when you're full and you've built goodly houses and dwelt therein, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. So there's prosperity and increase. That then, verse 14, thine heart be lifted up. And that's pride. That's the definition of pride, that your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought and where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and my might have gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Why is it necessary that God bring his people through a time in the wilderness, a time of drought, a time of fear, a time of silence, a time of suffering, a time of pain? A couple things for you maybe to write down or consider in this passage is that very first, first of all, and, and very foundationally, is that exaltation before humiliation 
always equals self-destruction. Exaltation before humiliation always equals self-destruction. God knows that when he looks at a life and he sees what's going on in our hearts, things that we don't even know that are there yet, and he sees in us and he says, if I exalt them, if I lift them up, if I give them the fullness of what I've got for them before they fully understand who they really are, number one, and also who I am, says God, they're going to they're gonna self-destruct. It's going to be a disaster. As I was studying this, I was thinking about Lot, the nephew of Abraham. He was attached to God through his uncle, and his relationship with God was there, but there was no character, no depth. And, and Abraham basically said, look, we can't be together anymore. There's too many of us. You choose where you want to go. And he said, I want to go to Sodom. There's money there. There's wealth. There's a land of blessing. It's like the garden of the Lord. And he went to Sodom. And he was prospered. He was elevated, but his character, he wasn't humbled. He didn't know who he was. And the result of it was disaster. When you look at what happened to Lot and the waste of life that he became, we see it in Samson. We see it in many. We see it in Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, such potential to be something so great, but it never happened. It never materialized. Why? Not because God is wicked and withheld something from him. But because if God were to do in in the life of someone what he wants to do before they've been humbled, it's disastrous. You say, well, what's so important about humility? Well, get last week's tape if you missed it. The purpose of God's humbling them was to show them, first of all, who they were. They needed to see. And what did they see? They saw that at every turn they rebelled against God. At every chance where they had a choice to either obey or disobey, they disobeyed. And they learned what was going on in their own heart, that they were a stubborn and rebellious people. They also learned, number two, who God is. Because even though they never obeyed and never did what was right, God never turned his back on them. And they needed to learn that. They needed to understand that God is faithful regardless because of his word and because of his love and because his love is unconditional. And they needed to learn that. And God has to make sure that that is something that we understand, that we know who we are. And then he'll do what he wants to do within our lives. Why else is it necessary? Not just because exaltation without humiliation is self-destruction, but also because, very simply, he wants to do us good. Notice what it says there in verse 16. He says, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. Is that God is interested in doing good for his people, but with that, there's an asterisk. Because not only is he interested in doing us good, but he wants that goodness to remain. And he knows that it's possible for us to screw it up. (laughs) and he wants it to last. I love that chapter, John chapter 15. And we all know it. It's the vine chapter where Jesus said that I am the vine and you are the branches. And, And he talks a lot in that chapter about fruit. And he talks to his disciples about bearing fruit, about bearing more fruit. And then he talks to them about bearing much fruit. And then he puts the icing on the cake in John chapter 15, verse 16, by saying to them that he wants their fruit to remain. That's the key to the whole chapter. 
Because if you bear fruit in your life, but if your fruit goes bad and your fruit doesn't remain, then what good is the fruit that you bore? And God's interested in seeing each one of us lead fruitful lives, but he's more interested in seeing our fruit remain. And so he will do what is necessary to adjust our character and make us the kind of people that, 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 that we need to be so that what he does in our life is not upset by the pride that comes with it as we begin to get lifted up and think that it had something to do with us. And so it's necessary because he wants to do us good. We say, okay, well, at what point does, does one graduate from this wilderness? Because I understand, I know these things that you're saying. I live in it. How do you get out of it, you know? When does it end, this wilderness experience, this wandering? Well, let me tell you exactly. No, no. I don't know. Because it's different for each one of us. Only God can look into the heart and he can see what's going on and see where we're at and what we need. And when his work is done, he'll do what he wants to do. But here, let me give you a clue. And I think that, that maybe I can, you know, at least hit the head of the nail somewhere with this. Is that I think that once a person, a man or a woman that calls themselves by his name, comes to a point where they're less interested in what they're going to get from God than they are in who they're getting it from. I really believe that there's a key in that. It is to not be so concerned about what we're going to get, what's he going to do, as we are with who it is that it's coming from. That it's not the what that matters in the Christian life, it's the who. That's the key. And see, when we've been humbled, that's what we appreciate. Not what we're going to get and what he's going to do, but rather who it's coming from, who he is, as we understand and appreciate him. I had some friends a couple years back. I taught a home Bible study at their house, and they adopted a couple of kids uh, from different places, and they adopted a young girl from Russia. And, and they got her from, infant, from almost infancy. She was just, uh, you know, maybe just under a year old when they, when they got her. And, and so, you know, she's come out of the orphanage. She's been barely touched by humans, you know, and beautiful young woman, young baby, you know. And, and they take her into their home, and, and they had had her for a couple of years. And I remember during that time, she was about three years old. And they were telling me that they were finding things from the refrigerator and the pantry in her bed. That, that at the age of three, she had it ingrained in her to go and, and take, hide food, bottles of ketchup, you know, cans of beans, you know, creamed corn and all. And they would find it in her bed, like under her sheets. And, and that that was just so ingrained in her from, from where she grew up and what she, she lived in, you know. And I thought, how many Christians live that way? Is that here we are, we're in, we're in America. No, no. <laughs> we're in the house of the Father, we belong to God. All things are ours. We've been made one with his son. We're adopted. And yet we're concerned about, well, what am I going to get from God? And we're like, God, I, I just pray, give me some ketchup. Lord, please. And if I can't get, I'm just going to take it. You know? and, and that's the way we live. I really think that heaven looks at the way we are. And, and, and it's so skewed. And why? Because we don't understand his love. See, his love towards us, he's a giving God. It's, he wants to lift us up. He wants to draw us close. He wants us to know him, that he's committed to us. And yet we're often more interested in what we're going to get from him than who it is that we're getting it from. And what I've learned is this, is that when a person is in a relationship with God because of what they're going to get from God, peace, prosperity, 
a job, a spouse, a stable life, if they're in this relationship because of what they're going to get from God, that once they get it, they'll forsake the who it's from. And the who it's from is the infinitely more valuable thing. You know, you, you ever watch The Price is Right, and at the end it comes down to the showcase showdown. And, and someone gets a new Lamborghini, and someone else gets a dining room. <laughs> and, and it's designed that way on purpose, so that you're like, get the Lamborghini, you know, yeah, you know, whatever. And, you know, someone here wants the dining room, whatever, you know. But here's what it is when it comes to this thing of the kingdom of God, is that you have two showcases. On the one hand, you have all the wealth in the world, all of what you could ever imagine, lands, houses, freedom, anything that this world can give to you in whatever proportion you want it. And on the other hand, you can have the fullness of a relationship with God. And I believe that many people would choose what they can get out of this life rather than what they get in him. But the true value is what you get in him. That's where life is. Think about it. Think about how humble God is. I mean, look at just your body. Think about the, the seat that you're sitting in. Think about a simple cell and how complex it is and how much God is tucked into it and, and just how incredibly intricate everything is that he has made. And yet he doesn't shout it on the housetops. He doesn't say, look what I did. Look at it. And he just lets us discover it. And he's content to just be humble. He's so humble. But yet, have you ever noticed this? Throughout the Bible, what does he say to us? He says, worship me. Love me. Love me with all your heart, mind, and strength. Worship me. Give me glory. Now, wait. How does that flesh out with God's humility and over here he's saying, worship me. Because doesn't it seem like there's like a little bit of a oxymoron in that? A little paradox, you know? Like, wait, he's humble, but yet he's saying, worship me. Why? Because he knows that the way that we're going to experience life in its fullest, the way that we're going to discover what it is that we were made for and, and, then, and then prosper in that is not going to be through what he gives to us, a land. Milk and honey. doesn't matter. Irrelevant. It's who he is. That's where life is. And when we have that, that's when we have life. See? And so that's the purpose of the wilderness, to bring us to that place of understanding. Do you realize that God has made us with an infinite ability to know him more and experience him? It's infinite. We can grow in that forever, and that's what he wants. He wants us to grow forever closer to him, to understand him more and more for all of eternity, to be blown away by his goodness and his love new every day, and that it never fades away, it never gets old, it never runs out, it just day by day, deeper and deeper and deeper. Can I tell you a secret about showcase number one? If you chose that and if you got it, you would realize real quick that you chose the wrong thing because it doesn't satisfy. It's not the gift, it's the giver. So graduation comes realizing that it's about him. See, that's what it's all about. Not about what he gives, about what he is. Well, how do you prevent this kind of forgetfulness that Moses is talking about as he warns them, hey, when you come into the land, when God begins to pull you out of this wilderness and things start happening, don't forget the Lord. How do you keep that from happening? 
He gives them two real practical pieces of advice here in this. Number one is never forget where you came from and how you got where you are. Notice it again there in verse uh, 14. He says, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord thy God, listen, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Never forget that you were a slave, that you were lost in sin, that you were in the clutches of Satan and you were on a downward spiral towards utter destruction and you could not save yourself. Don't ever forget that. Because if you ever forget that, you're fast on the path to putting God behind you and thinking that you did something for yourself. Not only that where you came from, but also how you got to where you're going. Notice at the beginning of verse 15 there. He says, who led thee? Who's the one that orders the steps of a man? God does. Not one of us in here tonight is here except by the grace of God. If you're healthy, you're healthy by the grace of God. If you're wealthy here tonight, you're wealthy by the grace of God. If you know God and you're, you're, you're in a right relationship with him, you're in a right relationship with him because he led you there. It had nothing to do with, with anything that you did for yourself. It had everything to do with God's involvement and sovereign power in your life to bring you where you are. And then notice at the beginning of verse 16, he says, who fed thee? So who saved you, who fed you, or led you, and who fed you? He's the one that has sustained you and kept you going this far. And don't ever begin to think that you would be where you are in your life if it wasn't for God. And once you do, you're on a fast track to forgetting. You're in a bad place. So don't forget where you came from and where you are. And then the second thing is that whatever you have in this life, whether it's something that's tangible, like some kind of wealth, or if it's a stable job, or if you have a nice house, or whether it's the invisible things. Maybe you're gifted, or you have uh, outward beauty, or maybe you can sing, you have some talents. Whatever it is that you have, what you enjoy, the comforts that have been afforded to you in this life, God must have the glory for those things. God must have the glory for it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, and he said, why do you boast? What makes you to differ from someone else? He says, what do you have that you did not receive? So why then do you boast as though you did not receive it? Whatever it is that you enjoy in your life, it's a gift from God. It did not come from you. You did not build that business. <laughs> God did. And as soon as you forget as soon as you begin to think that it had something to do with you or that you're talented or that you're educated or that you're an American or that you're a Republican or a Democrat or you think that there's anything about you that has brought you to the place where you are, you're in trouble. God must have the glory. That's what he tells them there in verse 18. But you shall remember that the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. So very practical. If you do those things, if you always remember where you came from and how you got to where you are, and if God gets the glory for everything that happens in your life, you won't forget the Lord. You'll be in a right place with him. And that's the exhortation that Moses is giving. In verse 19, he says, And it shall be, if you do at all, forget the Lord thy God. 
and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall you perish because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. And then he carries on uh, and elaborates further in chapter 9. He says, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Notice that what God is bringing you into is bigger than you. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than what you could plan. It's bigger than what you would do what you could do for yourself. It's better than what you could forecast or desire for yourself. I've been asked a few times in my life, and maybe you have too, is that if you could write your own ticket and paint the perfect picture of your life, what would you paint? And what I've learned, and what you would be wise to adapt for yourself, is whatever God wants. <laughs> because he can paint a much better picture than you can, and he can do for you what you could never do for yourself. Greater than yourself. Cities great and fenced up to heaven. A people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand, therefore, this day, that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said unto thee. He begins right here by, by putting it right up front. It's not you. You are not the one that's winning this battle. You are not the force behind their fall. It's me, the Lord says. I'm the one that's going to drive them out. And then in verse 4, he says, Speak not thou in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go in to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Now, does anybody maybe just guess what the Lord is trying to say to them in these verses? <laughs> three times, he says, three times. It is not for your righteousness. It's not because you are a good person that I am going to do in your life the things that I'm going to do in your life. It's not because you're faithful in your attendance at church every week and that you never miss a Sunday. It's not because you served in the Sunday school faithfully week after week and did it without complaining. It's not because of what you donated to the bake sale or what you sent onto the mission field. It's not because of the support that you gave to people in ministry or to orphans or to homeless people. It's not for the charity. It is not for anything that you have done that I am doing this for you. But it's for the wickedness of them that I'm casting them out. Don't begin to think that any good grace that ever comes into your life has anything to do with something that you did. 
Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Not for works of righteousness that we have done, but by his grace has he saved us. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul said to the Ephesians. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It's not our righteousness. And so now he's going to just, he just wants them to understand this. And so now what he's going to do is for the rest of this chapter, he's going to tell them everything they ever did wrong. Don't you love people like that? (laughs) Just in case you're tempted to think it had something to do with you, he says in verse 7, remember, and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until you came unto this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also, in Oreb, that's Mount Sinai, where they received the law, you provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant which the Lord made with you, you know, those two stones that had the law inscribed by the finger of God. I abode in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spoke with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. So Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights waiting for God to deliver to him these these tablets. And it says in verse 12, And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image. You know, the golden calf. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That's God's assessment. Let me alone, God says, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down the mount, and the mount burned with fire, and the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God and made you a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took the two tables, and I cast them out of my two hands and break them before your eyes. A a picture, a symbol of what the people had done, the broken law. They had broken God's law. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which you had sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. So Moses, in these verses, he says to them, listen, it had nothing to do with you. Your salvation, the deliverance from Egypt, the promised land that you're about to receive, it has nothing to do with you. You've been rebellious and stiff-necked and you've sinned against God at every juncture. 
Not only, Moses says, did it have nothing to do with you, but he goes on to say it had nothing to do with your leaders. It wasn't because of your pastors. Verse 20, he said, And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him, and I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. So it had nothing to do with their leaders. Pastor Aaron was the one who, you know, it's funny, you read Exodus 34, the account of where it happened, and when Moses comes down the mountain and he sees this golden calf, Aaron starts to make these excuses. And you know what he says? He says, I didn't know what to do. You were gone. So I told the people to give me their gold. I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. I don't know. You know, and you read it, and that was what Aaron said. It, 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 was, it was crazy, you know. And so it had nothing to do with the leaders, They were clueless. They were rebellious. It had nothing to do with their repentance. Look at verse 21. He says, and I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burnt it with fire, and stamped it, and ground it very small, even until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mount. And then he goes on to say it's not about their experience in verse 22. He says, and at Taborah, and at Massa, And at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. At every place that we have stopped and camped, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Likewise, when the Lord sent you up from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you believed him not, nor hearkened unto his voice. You have been rebellious in every way. And this grace that God has given to you has nothing to do with you. Well, you say, okay, what did it have to do with them? If it had nothing to do with them, even to the point where God was saying, let me just wipe them out. Now, we're going to find out that that was not God's heart, you know. Then what did it have to do with? Here's what it had to do with. And listen carefully, because this is where it comes to you and I as well. It had everything to do with their intercessor. Notice in verse 24. He says, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights, as I fell down at the first, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed therefore unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, destroy not thou thy people, and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not unto their stubbornness, the stubbornness of this people, not, nor unto their wickedness, nor unto their sin. Lest the land whence thou broughtest us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them. And because he hated them, hath he brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. And so Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that the reason why the hand of God's judgment was forestalled against you was because of the intercession of the mediator. Moses was the mediator of the covenant that God made with his people. And Moses interceded on their behalf. What does that have to do with you and me? The Bible says that Jesus 
is the mediator of a better covenant. And that our salvation, the grace that we've received, the promises of God in Christ Jesus have nothing to do with anything that we can boast of. And everything to do with what he purchased and what he maintains. That when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and his blood was shed for the sins of mankind, the invitation went forth to whosoever would believe in him that they could receive the gift of eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that all their sins, all your sins and mine, could be placed upon him, the Lamb of God that was slain to take away the sins of humanity, and that in exchange, the righteousness that he produced through a perfect life would be imputed unto those that believe. And that is what we've received. Not reward for what we've done, not credit for going to church, not rewards for good things, good deeds, our good outweighing our bad, but we've been rewarded grace because of what Jesus Christ has purchased on the cross. And now the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me, that he is in heaven right now interceding on our behalf able to save us to the uttermost, those that come to faith through him, come to God through him. And so our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ and the blood. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious God. Well, he goes on in chapter 10, and you can read on your own, and and I, I had planned it this way. I actually planned it this way so that we would finish on time, is that in verses 1 through 5, Moses just recounts to them about how he got the second set of tablets. Remember, he came down with the first set of iPads, and he broke them. Um, and so he goes back up because he's got to get new tablets and those things are not easy to make. So 40 more days, 40 more nights, God uh, gives to him the second set of tablets. And then in verse 6, he, he recounts how Aaron passed away, the death of Aaron. And then in verses 7 through 11, uh, he, he discusses how the, the, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, was chosen to become the priests. They would be the ones that would carry the ark and Uh, They wouldn't have an inheritance in the land. And then in verses 12 through 22, which we will read here, he gives to them basically the summation of their education as he sums up all that he's spoken to them in the past few chapters now. And he says, and now Israel, verse 12, he said, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? That's a good question, isn't it? What does God require of us? What does God want when he looks at the lives of his people? And he tells them here, he says, but to fear the Lord thy God. The word of fear the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what's the best thing to do. And the Bible says that if we have a healthy fear of God, that's the beginning of discovering what's the best thing to do. If we, if we fear God, then we're going to acknowledge him in the decisions that we make, and that's going to cause us to find his counsel and make wise choices, right? (laughs) So fear the Lord. He tells us to fear him. And then he says to walk in all of his ways. To walk means that where we go with our feet, not just what we say or what we profess or what we believe, but what we do, where we go, walk in his ways. Jesus said that it's a narrow way that leads to life and few there be that find it. We're to order our steps according to his will and his ways. We're to walk in all his ways and to love him 
and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. So very simply, if you were to put all of these things under one heading that God requires of us is that he requires obedience. He wants us to obey him. Not because he's a stern taskmaster or a dictator in heaven that's going to tell us what to do, but because he sincerely wants what's best for us. And he says, listen, if you do things my way, you're going to do well. If you don't, you're not. It's so simple. So obedience, not only obedience, but then he says perspective in verse uh, 14 and 15 here. He says, behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, and earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. What is, how, how, do you, how do you dovetail what we read in chapter 9 about the wrath of God and his word that he was going to blot the people out And what Moses is telling them here in verses 14 and 15 about how God loved them and chose them as as his special inheritance, how do those two things fit together? And I I don't know, to be honest with you, but here's what I can tell you. I can tell you this, is when you come into the New Testament and you read in John chapter 1 about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says in John chapter 1 verse 18, it says that no man hath seen God at any time but the only begotten Son, he hath declared him or manifested him or made him known. That Jesus Christ came to manifest or to make known who the Father was. And then in John chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, Jesus says there, listen carefully, he says, I do always those things which please the Father. That my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. What I say is what I hear from him, and what I do is what he has given me to do. And what did the Father give the Son to do? To declare him. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see the love of God demonstrated towards humanity. And so here's what we understand, is that whatever it means in chapter 9, when it says that God was very wroth to have wiped them out, all of that is spoken in the context that God was willing to send his own Son into the world to bring to us a manifestation of who he was. And if God was willing to go to that length to become one of us and dwell among us so that we would know who he is, then his love for us is the emphasis. That's what he gives to us. And so he's given us perspective. He says that he had delight in them to love them. And why would God do that? He loves us. And so then the third thing is that he requires holiness. Verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and awesome, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. To circumcise the heart means to cut away the carnal inclinations or the things that would cause us to turn away from the Lord. It's a cutting away of those things that would draw us away And then finally, in verse 4, he calls us to have compassion on the lost. In verse 18, he said, He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and he loves the stranger in giving them food and raiment. Love ye, therefore, the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
Part of not forgetting where you came from is having compassion on those that are still there. Is recognizing that there are still people that their head hits the pillow at night and they wonder, what is this all about? Why was I created? What's this universe all about? Are we just a bunch of viruses breaking down an organic planet? What, what, what is it all about? We know what that's about. When's the last time you even thought about that? But yet there's thousands of people around us that think those thoughts every day. They don't know why they're here. And God says, love the stranger. Don't forget that you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord thy God. You shall serve him. And to him you shall cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise. And he is thy God and hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with 70 persons. And now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. So God calls them to have compassion, to consider where they've come from, to fear his name, to be obedient unto him, to have perspective. Why would he do these things for me? And it brings us to his love. Next week, we'll pick up with chapter 11. As the musicians are coming, I love that picture of the showcase showdown. And I would leave you thinking about that in the context of your own life is that if you were to get real honest with yourself tonight, as you sit here and the Spirit of God searches all things, you could choose. No one else would be affected by your choice. It's just you and God. And on the one hand, you could choose and you could have the life of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest, the richest man that ever lived. In his days, silver was regarded as stones. And you could have that if you said, I want showcase number one. I want the life of Solomon. I want what he had. All the glory of this world. And on the other hand, door number two, you could have the fullness of what God promises you in a New Testament relationship with Jesus Christ. What would you choose? If you were honest before the Lord, and right now he gave you that choice, which door would you take? And, and, you know, there, there's no penalty. He, he's not going to, you don't go to hell if you choose one or the other, but you can choose. As far as the remainder of your life on this earth, which would you rather have? Solomon, Jesus. I'll tell you one thing. Solomon, who had everything that this world could offer, who out of his own mouth testified that nothing that was under the sun that he withhold from himself, that he experienced and had everything that was under the sun. And do you know what his message was at the end of experiencing all of that? Do you know what he said? He said the purpose and meaning of all of life is to get over the sun. After experiencing everything there is to experience under the sun, he said what I want is to get what's over the sun. That's what's over here. It's Jesus Christ. And it's the love of God that he wants to manifest in your life and in mine. May God search our hearts tonight. Let's stand and sing together, shall we?